Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today we're joined by Christopher Hager, who's the author of the new book, I Remain Yours, Common Lives in Civil War Letters, just published from Harvard University Press. Christopher Hager is a writer who explores the lives of ordinary Americans through their writing, diaries kept by slaves, letters written by the wives and children of Civil War soldiers, magazine stories by factory workers, His first book, Word by Word, Emancipation and the Act of Writing, won the 2014 Frederick Douglass Prize for the best book of the year on the subject of slavery. Hager is Associate Professor of English at Trinity College in Hartford, where he teaches courses in American literature and culture from the 19th century to the present. I Remain Yours focuses on what Hager writes are, quote, the cell-level transfers that created the meaning of the Civil War. What he does is follow a group of soldiers whose correspondence he can trace over a set of letters. So he's not just taking choice quotes from a bunch of uh, letters across the war and putting them all together to make some larger statement, which is the method that many have used to study uh, Civil War letters, especially of common soldiers. Uh, Many historians have been much more interested in looking at the letters of more educated people, those that speak of, quote, the issues of the war, the politics and the and the debates. And so many of these historians have thought that the content of these letters of the common folk, the common soldier, don't have much to say or much meaning because they don't say much about these politics or even racial issues of the time. Oh, and they repeat themselves is always the critique. So other than studies that look to uh, create a kind of composite view of what a common soldier was, the letters have been largely ignored. But what we'll see through what Hager has done, which is a much more literary analysis of the letters, that what these scholars, past scholars, have read read, read right by or even ignored might be more revealing than anyone has yet shown until now. So Christopher Hager, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Mike. It's nice to be here. So let's just start with what led you uh, to this book. And I'm assuming it's somewhat of an extension of uh, uh, your project about the letters of African-Americans. Yeah, it is. You know, what was really most compelling to me about the material that I was working with for my first book um, was that even though I had a PhD in English and I had a lot of experience and expertise as a reader of texts. When I looked at documents by people who couldn't write very well, um, I found that they required methods of reading that were different from what my academic training um, had uh, had cultivated in me. And that there was a lot that you can actually learn about um, the compositional process by a writer who, um, whose struggles with the written word are evident right there on the page. Um, and after I finished uh, my first book, I, I really didn't want to stop doing that kind of research 
um, because as much as I felt that it was illuminating, um, illuminating uh, documents and experiences uh, that were important um, historically and that needed to be brought to, brought to light, it was also educational for me. Uh, and I sort of wanted to continue that education. So um, Civil War letters were something that for me as a student of 19th century America have always been part of the landscape that they, they come up in things that I read or write about all the time. And um, so in a way, once I finally conceived the idea of writing this book, I realized I'd kind of already been working on it for a while. Um, I just hadn't um, thought of myself as actually studying those letters as a particular genre of written expression. Uh, and so once I started to do that, um, I was... I was as swept up in it as I had been by working with letters and diaries by enslaved people. But one of the most notable differences is that there are so many Civil War letters. Uh, and so sort of figuring out how I was going to reckon with the great volume of available material um, was a challenge that really engaged me um, in trying to do this book. Right. Obviously, the many of these letters have been published. Uh, not the the ones that you're working with, but but letters of of better known soldiers. Let's say been published in in edited collections, anthologies, and used in countless studies. But there are thousands more letters that are kept by families and then are sitting in archives um, that that you're you're looking into. But um, as I also said in in my introduction have been sort of overlooked by, by historians. Um, so what, what made you want to work more with these letters of, of common soldiers? Uh, and you said that it has required or required you to, to develop a different kind of reading. And we'll, we'll talk much more about that, about the methodology that you're using here. Um, but what, what, what attracted you to, to a corpus that has not been, other than the fact that it hasn't been worked with as much. The thing that is that I find so captivating about letters by people who are still learning how to write is that um, you can see, you can't always see with 100% clarity, clarity, but you can um, very often deduce what was the thought process um, in crafting this piece of writing. When, you know, I, I was trained as an English major to be, suspicious of, you know, claims about authorial intention. That was the, the theoretical premise of the period in which I came of age. Uh, and so it was not something that I had given much thought to until um, working with these kinds of materials where I realized this text to me is, is not interesting because of how it circulated through a culture and influenced people, which is what many people who study literature are concerned with. How did something that had many, many readers um, shape opinion? How did it shape culture? Um, the circulation and reception of a text is, is what's most compelling. Um, but for me, the fact that a, a text could be um, an artifact of an actual unfolding process of someone trying to wrestle with a problem or trying to think about an issue or trying to connect with some other person. When you are holding a document and you can see someone crossing out words, you can see someone um, who can write a fairly lucid sentence, but then goes into a phase of a letter where the syntax becomes really garbled and you can start to realize as you read it, 
there's a reason that someone is struggling with these sentences. These sentences are trying to do something different. Um, you can sometimes tell in the ways that people um, try again and again to spell a word that they clearly don't know how to spell, that they've got a commitment to that word. They really want to use that word. Um, so there are a lot of windows into um, a writing process as um, something in progress rather than a text as a finished product. Um, and that is fascinating to me as a scholar of texts. What made the Civil War letters so um, so interesting to me is that I realized because of the great volume that survive, um, that I could start to see the letters as parts of a longer process, longer than just maybe the, you know, the half hour that someone is sitting down writing on that piece of paper, but the months and years that two people are carrying on a correspondence. I didn't have the ability to do that in my first book because when you, when I was looking for, um, uh, documents written by enslaved people, it's hard to find them. There aren't very many. I wrote a whole chapter about a single letter. Now I realized I could see how letters evolved, how someone would receive a letter, think about it, respond to it, get another one back, and keep that process going. So that was really the most important thing for me in deciding how to narrow down the enormous archive of Civil War letters. We've got, you know, tons of letters by soldiers, we don't as often have the letters that those soldiers received from people at home. And so I wanted to find um, examples where both of those were preserved so that in addition to seeing the thought process that unfolds on a single piece of paper, I could see the ways that trying to put thoughts and feelings into words um, was part of the evolution of a relationship in letters that were being exchanged over a period of time. Right. The exchange being key. And then once you can identify a few exchanges or, or have gathered a few exchanges over time, you can trace where that soldier was, what battles, where they moved and incorporate that into your analysis. And I want to, though, go back to this idea of the struggle, the struggle in the writing and how that's much more um, accessible or apparent in letters written by people who were largely illiterate. Uh, and so there's a lot of challenges going on for them, uh, learning to write, um, learning to, or trying to express something that might be impossible to express all of the traumatic feelings they have at war, or just the trauma of being separated from their loved ones at home. So there's the learning to write, there's the trying to express, and all of these things are coming together to create lots and lots of feeling that becomes bottled into particular words and the struggle to find the word. Um, so before we talk about the, the sort of uh, congealing of affects around these objects, the letter as object and the word or the sound or the mark on the page as object, let's just take a step back and talk a little bit about the conditions of letter writing at the time. What did these uh, people who, who had not been used to writing letters, maybe never had written a letter before, what did they know about letter writing and what did they have to learn? on the fly, so to speak, uh, when they started composing their letters at war? Yeah. Part of, part of where this book really came from for me is that um, after I'd written my first book and you know had some experience going around and giving talks about that book and, and would quote letters by 
enslaved people to audiences, I would often get a question from somebody that said, how on earth did this person enslaved in Virginia know that it was customary to begin a letter by saying, dear so-and-so, I take up my pen to write you a few lines to let you know that I am well. Um, How did these things that people who study um, epistolary culture recognize as stock phrases, conventions that were widely observed, um, how could someone who had almost no education, little access to printed material um, or correspondence with other people, how could someone have known that there were all these sort of unwritten rules about how a letter was supposed to sound? And I never had an answer. I, I don't know. But what it tells us that even someone um, who was enslaved had somehow picked up many of the conventions of 19th century epistolary culture, it tells us that um, letters and letter writing and ideas about letter writing clearly circulated in ways um, that are probably more numerous than we might presume. Um, people had occasions to hear letters written aloud. Um, people had occasions perhaps to overhear letters being dictated. Um, you had many, many different ways in which the culture of letter writing um, was accessible to people who weren't necessarily very active participants in it. So one of the essential conditions that, um, say, a Civil War soldier and his family members are in when they begin trying to exchange letters upon their separation during the war is that while they don't have a lot of experience as letter writers, they do know that the practice they're engaging in has some rules. Um, And they may or may not know what those rules are. They may have had um, access to a letter writing manual, of which there were many that actually provided guidance to people. There was a big market in books that would tell you how to write a letter that would um, that would look like an appropriate letter to its recipient. But even if you didn't have that, um, you probably had ways of picking up um, from the oral culture around you what kinds of things were going on in this written culture. Um, for some writers, that was a matter of anxiety to know there were all these rules and that you might not know how to follow them. Um, for some, it seems to be useful because even if you weren't quite sure how to express something very personal, um, you knew that you could write a letter that explained your health and talked about the weather and talked about the food that you were eating um, and that this was going to go through the mail and go across great distances to reassure your loved one that you were still alive and healthy. Um, And so there was a a process for many writers of having to negotiate um, their relationship between letters as relatively empty um, tokens of um, physical um, uh, uh, of your physical survival um, with letters that might actually carry carry meaning to someone you want to you want to convey that to. Right. So there is this tension between um, the the decorum of a letter that allows someone to more comfortably begin writing uh, against the need to say something that that might not be best said through the decorum of letter writing, uh, especially with what was going on at war 
and especially when the letter writers were people who who weren't necessarily interested uh, in in abiding by rules of writing, even though those rules made it easier and more comfortable to get going, because the pa- the empty page, as we all know, is a scary thing. Uh, and so, so it, it almost you talk a little bit about the book that it's almost as if the the these rules were circulating at the time and there were models, um, but but the pressures of the moment. Uh, created or uh, introduced new um, modes of more sort of direct contact through with those at home through writing that that what was forged in these letters of common soldiers was something much more direct in communication than would maybe have come through if one was following more precisely the decorum of letter writing. Right. And I think that's, you know, where you know, you alluded in the introduction to the fact that there um, has been a tendency among uh, among Civil War historians to work from the letters of relatively educated people because those letters are, well, they're easier to read for one thing. Um, they tend to deal in more complex, sophisticated, and eloquent ways with um, the kinds of concerns that we have about the Civil War today. Why was it fought? What did people think about the politics behind it? Um, but for me, as someone who's concerned with actually how people use written expression to communicate with each other, um, it's an uneducated person who might not have as good a grasp of that decorum or who, for simple you know, lack of um, familiarity with it, not be bound by it, who is going to find, to me, somewhat more um, original and fascinating ways of using written expression to do that. Um, so, you know, one example that I use in the book, there's a, just a single letter by a, a Massachusetts soldier um, named Caleb Phillips, who's serving in Indiana. And um, he, he has one side of, a sheet of, of a, a sheet of letter paper on which he writes what I think most people would agree is a relatively boring letter. It does what letters are supposed to do. It says, it talks about his health, tells his wife to say hello to people back home, um, and then he signs his name. And apparently after he had done that very customary, but not all that interesting thing, he got a letter from his wife um, back home. I think the first letter that he had gotten since he'd been stationed in Indiana. And the back of his sheet of letter paper is still blank. And so now he turns on, turns to the, the blank back of the page and writes just a bunch of disconnected um, short responses to different things in his wife's letter. Um, and it's much more um, revealing about his relationship with his wife, about how he's um, adapting to life in the army. Um, he has, you know, just one little stray couple of lines that are not even like, you know, not everything is perfectly centered on the page where he tells his wife that um, he has the knife and fork that he took from home still with him um, in his knapsack along with his army issue knife and fork, but that he uses the knife and fork from home, um, which is nothing that any letter writing guide would ever encourage you to talk about some detail of your, of your daily life. That's actually um, a kind of, uh, you know, compelling metaphor of the, the troubles of separation and how you adapt these identities of, you know, who you were at home and who you are in the army. Um, and only once, you know, 
this particular soldier had sort of broken out of the customary form of the letter to just jot down um, sporadic responses on the back of the page, uh, would he strike upon something like that? Right. So that the image of the well, I'm I'm using these these utensils from from home as well um, charges those utensils with with a lot of emotional power and weight as as a sign to communicate some kind of connection with home. Uh, and in this way, the stammering through and over words and in images, in addition to creating lots of feeling on the page, um, shows how meaning sort of always exceeds any one sign or word and, and nothing could possibly contain everything that they're trying to say. But, but in that, that bottling up of, of these emotion into these, these images that, that seemingly appear out of nowhere, um, is a much more, much more immediate, uh, connection to, to maybe the recipient. And, and certainly I would say to us as, as readers. And so I'm wondering about your own relationship then in reading these letters and feeling what, not exactly what they were feeling, but, but how did you come to feel maybe caught up in the emotions that were going back and forth in the attempt for these people to connect? Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And it's something that, um, that I have struggled with a little bit as a writer that in trying to, um, interpret, uh, and make come alive and do justice, uh, in this book to, you know, the, the emotional texture of, daily life for people living through the war and communicating about it through their letters. You know, it's, it's a very subjective um, matter to be writing about. Uh, and I uh, wanted always to be careful in writing about this, that I was not um, projecting what I wanted to see there or trying to, because there's a lot of, you know, um, reconstruction of, a scene, a set of lives based on the evidence of these letters. And I wanted to be very careful that I was never um, fabricating something that wasn't there um, for dramatic purpose. Um, and also that I wasn't um, managing my reader's emotional response to the letters that I'm presenting. Um, because there are, as with anything, there are always multiple ways to interpret things. So I wanted to find ways to... Um, reveal the, uh, the emotional power of something like, um, you know, yeah. Telling your wife that you are still using the knife and fork that she sent you away to war with, um, without trying to decide in advance, what exactly is the emotional content of that? Well, I thought you didn't, you handled that very well by, by pointing us to the fact that the emotional content is in the very struggle to say what they want to say. That, that that it's not uh, you're right we shouldn't be scripting sort of an emotional narrative or dialogue uh around what what we're reading in terms of well he you know what he was really feeling is this or what she was really upset about was that but simply i i think and this is how i read what you were doing pointing us to the remains that exist of the attempt to express yourself because as I was saying, you know, no, no one word or no sign or mark on a page can possibly say all. 
and I think it's the drawing attention to this sort of struggle or the incompleteness of expression that emo- where emotion comes alive and, and feeling resides. And so that to, to, you know, just quote people, especially the more well-educated, um, is a way to, to bypass that feeling. But if you were to take it head on as you do, it doesn't necessarily mean telling you what someone feels. It just means drawing our attention to feeling, to the actual um, uh, intensity around a word or a phrase. And that we as readers can make all sorts of associations with that, or what it might mean in that relationship at that time. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's for me an essential part of um, what the experience of reading these letters was like for the people who received them. Um, And it's an essential part of how they yield up what they have to say. Um, Because as I've said, that's often where you can begin to glimpse um, the um, the commitment that someone might have had to trying to get across an idea, um, even when there was an obvious struggle to do it. Uh, and so I know that many of the, uh, there are many long quotations in the book that are not at all easy to read. Um, but to regularize them would be for me to decide that I know exactly what this person was trying to say. And if you put it into standard English, this is what it would look like. Um, but Sometimes it's not possible to tell what the person was trying to say for sure. Um, And that doesn't necessarily make the letter unrevealing. It simply means that as readers, we have to consider a couple of possibilities about what was the thought or feeling behind this. Right. You would, you admonish the reader at the end of your introduction, you know, that they'll have to work to understand. And certainly it does demand slowness in reading or, or the, or the, these uncorrected texts slow the reader down. But I would say, you know, it's pretty easy to obviously get get the the drift of things. But but what's really slowing us down, so to speak, is that is that the writing is so is so momentous, is so charged. You know, once once you can kind of get past the the different ways of spelling something, um, you realize that really what is what sort of controls the pace of the reading as much as the writing is as we've been talking about this kind of this gathering of of feeling down to to a few words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I have sometimes thought of these letters in terms of, anal- of an, an analogy for a contemporary audience that, um, you know, if you imagine an entire generation of Americans getting their first smartphone all at the same time, and then fanning out across state lines and beginning to send a bunch of text messages to each other, um, it would be this, you know, maelstrom of typos and autocorrects and miscommunications because people are still figuring out how to do this. Um, and everybody knows that it's a, it's a medium that is, um, you know, that is fraught with all sorts of little things that can go wrong, um, little, you know, quirks of expression that, you know, are not how we would write or speak in a more formal medium, but there they are. But the, the limitation of the analogy is that all these text messages would just be about, you know, what most text messages are about, which is nothing particularly um, weighty. But these people were writing letters that were, they were about the experience of war and privation and many families' first separation and the kinds of hardships that were going on 
um, on both sides and where you see a lot of um, the, the sort of dense um, accumulation of pent up feeling uh, sometimes uh, in a very tender way, but just as often in um, a kind of impatient way is in the, the challenge for particularly, I think, husbands and wives to grasp and acknowledge the very different sacrifices that both of them were making. Um, that it was very easy for a soldier to get frustrated that people back home didn't understand what he was going through on a battlefield. Um, and it was also possible for a woman back at home to, uh, to feel that, you know, her husband might not be appreciating what she was doing, trying to manage a household with several children on her own. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the, the changes in even what seem like stock phrases, the way that people do, um, greet someone in a letter or sign off or say, you know, um, uh, please give my kind regards to everyone at home. You know, sometimes you can see over a course of months and years how some of um, what may have begun as a fairly um, empty um, act of simple decorum starts to change in something that sort of molds itself to the to the particular individuals who are using it. Right, and at the end of the day, uh, they just want to keep receiving letters, whether they can understand them or not, because it is a sign that the other is still present and hasn't begun to live a life separate from you. And so you nicely boil down the message, no matter what the content is, the very act of writing basically can boil down to, to saying, I am still living. I have not forgotten you. I remain yours. And these sort of very basic, um, emotional, uh, communications, that you know, it's not you're not you're not giving additional content. I mean, I think it's simply to say, well, how can we turn this into a phrase that that is very basic yet yet is is clearly operative in the the sheer attempt at communicating? I am still living. I have not forgotten you. I remain yours, and that even the smallest mark on the page can allow for that connection to remain. Yeah, there was a soldier from Ohio who told his. His wife, um, who was apparently, you know, not particularly literate, um, that he wanted her to write, even if all she wrote was the ABCs. Um, and he said, and if you get tired of making ABCs, you can just make black marks um, that, you know, for for a, a manuscript culture, um, just the the physical trace of a person's, you know, hand on a page was was part of how Americans of this generation really romanticized letters. Um, and they believed that letters had this sort of special power um, to carry a kind of trace of the physical body. And so, um, you know, the content was often not as important to the people receiving these letters as we tend to think it maybe should be. We're reading them for content because to us, they don't have that um, um, that same valence of sort of bringing with it the, the, the physical touch of the person who, who wrote on it. Right. But that the the content, as you are showing, is in the the, the touch and the the very limited markings. I mean, the, it was it's incredibly moving that moment where where the soldier to his wife says, well, if any if you can't write anything, just write the alphabet or just make black marks on the page. And I am wondering if you think 
what are the larger emotional dynamics that this opens up onto beyond any one relationship? Again, I was sort of reading it as, you know, show me that you love me, uh, even if through a mark on the page, because otherwise I'll, I'll think there's something more important um, in your life than me. And it, that's, that seemed to be like two sides of like the question of union and disunion, you know? I mean, show me that you love me, that I'm here fighting for you. We're, we're, this is about our, our live, lives together bef before, during, and after the war. I'm here to preserve them. And if I don't hear from you, then I'm made to feel like you're thinking about something else. You're doing something else. There's something more important in your life. There's a question of, of a union falling apart. And obviously there are, you know, we've talked about tons of other issues at, pl at play that, that more educated writers may articulate, but is not those basic dynamics of, uh, that come alive through separation, uh, informing most, if not all of these soldiers, uh, uh, dedication to this cause of, 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 let's say in the North union, but it's the same thing in the South too, preserving their life, preserving their family. Yeah. You know, um, there's a, a a book that's influential for me um, from some years ago by a scholar named Elizabeth Hewitt, um, which is on correspondence in um, American literature in sort of the early national period. Um, and she makes a case that the, the letter writing of, in this case, you know, very educated people, mostly writers, you know, canonical writers of literature whom we've heard of, um, that a lot of them are using letter writing as a way of thinking about federalism in a new nation. Um, because, you know, federalism is in a way it's about, um, sustaining relations in a kind of virtual realm. What's the connection between one state and another people in one part of this newly constituted nation and another, um, and letters are a medium in which people have to deal with, um, a, a virtual realm, um, that they're, they're, they're not physically touching people, but they kind of want to think that they are. Um, and I think you're right that for, for these soldiers and their families, um, they constantly express the fear that their loved one is going to forget them. Forget is, is the, by far the most common verb. Um, you know, and in, in different contexts, it means, you know, that your, your love for me is going to grow cold. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to be seeing other people. You're going to do whatever you're doing you're, to forget. Um, it's a kind of, you know, forgetting is a kind of failure of sustaining connection and attachment, um, in the absence of physical proximity. Um, and that is, you're right. That's exactly the, that's a way of articulating, um, the dilemma of the civil war at, at a national scale, um, and for people who have, in most cases, not lived at any physical distance from each other until, until this war, um, that's what letters become. Letters become the test of whether connection can get sustained um, without daily um, material togetherness. Yeah, and it's only when people are, are separate that you see how their bonds are constituted and reconstituted through through language that although is written in this case because they needed to because they weren't around each other and when they are they don't need to write letters but but as we've been talking about that writing is just an extension of thinking and and so when they're not writing they're articulating their thoughts of connection or feelings of disconnection in in planning a letter or or in dictating a letter so that so that writing is something that exceeds the page 
and it's something that is uh, uh, more about the thought process of these people in their daily lives, thinking about what they'll say in a letter, but also just trying to understand what's going on around them. Um, and then eventually maybe putting that on the page. Um, but, but seeing the world through the need to communicate what you see to someone who's separate from you. So there's a, there's writing that's going on all the time, even outside these letters. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of reasons to be, um, to be skeptical of how much, uh, written documents can tell us. And we've had, you know, a couple generations now of historiography, um, in many fields, um, you know, to remind us that, um, if we, if as historians, we only pay attention to what gets written down, we're going to miss things. Um, and you know, now there's much great, you know, work being done that uses material culture, that uses visual culture, that tries to recover oral traditions, um, to recognize that particularly for ordinary people, much of experience never comes anywhere near a written page never gets documented. The archives are not, um, archives do not come into being, uh, in order to preserve the experiences of ordinary people. Um, but to me, the civil war is a, is a really remarkable moment because so many people who don't normally end up in the archives do because they have to use these letters, um, as part of a daily life and a connection to other people that wouldn't otherwise have, ended up in writing. Um, and as you're suggesting, yeah, I think though surely many, probably most people's letters um, failed in their eyes to capture and express everything that they wanted them to. Um, it is nevertheless the case that if you, as, as, as you know, hundreds of thousands of people were, uh, if you were in the habit of exchanging letters with your wife or your parents um, on a weekly basis for a period of years, surely your way of processing your experience um, has been influenced by the fact that now a lot of what you do with that experience is you figure out how to record it in that weekly letter. Um, I don't. I don't think that I have, or that anyone can. Um, you know, reliably deduce exactly how was that influence felt? Um, what does it mean to have um, begun processing your experience of a war in a way that is mediated through letter writing? Um, but I think it does, uh, that does simply speak to the the value of these letters, even if they are imperfect, even if they were perhaps deeply flawed in their own writers and recipients' eyes, um, that they were not just um, uh, an, a record of that experience, but they really were the experience itself. Right. And that it allowed the writers to experience the world uh, in a new way or see things that they weren't seeing before. So when a, a wife back home talks about how much additional work she has to do to manage the farm with the, with the husband's absence, um, and all of those around the men who are still in town, maybe trying to take advantage of her, uh, she's reading those interactions in relationship to the war at large. And, uh, you make the comment about how through these, this correspondence between husband and wife, that they're realizing that although one's 
quote unquote at war and one's at home, they're really at war together. And the, and, and the, the ability to, to, ex- to express their positions relative to each other, even though they're in different places, uh, reveals that the emotional dynamics are very similar for them individually and how, in terms of how they see the world around them. And so that war could erupt at home because of some nasty guy who's trying to take advantage of the farm when the husband's gone. And that that's not that different from the, the, the quote unquote battle being fought, you know, that's usually, or has been historically marked, um, you know, by in, in larger narratives of the war, but that, but that if you look at this level, that these eruptions are happening in the smallest ways. And it's through the writing that it's allowing these people to finally see or articulate that, let's say, and then so that we can see it in their letters. Yeah, I mean, we've you know, there's there's been great recent work by historians trying to you know understand the Civil War home front better than we did for many years when you know the emphasis of historians was um, overwhelmingly on on military history and on battles. Um, but still, when we study the Civil War home front and study you know what were women's roles in the Civil War, um, what uh, we've often had our eyes out for are um, organized efforts. Um, you know, philanthropic organizations, um, ways that um, people engaged in collective action um, on the home front, which is, of course, you know, a crucial part of the story of the war. But um, what I think many of the correspondences between people at home and, and soldiers show us is how much there was, a, you know, in the way that you're describing, a real struggle um, for people to sound out within the frame of reference of their own family relationships, how their lives at home related um, to, to the larger story of the war. Um, you know, uh, you, you alluded earlier to the ways in which, you know, I trying to write about the emotional um, side of these correspondences, you know, how do I deal with that? Uh, it's certainly the case that I may quite well be guilty, um, you know, as a married person, of having overemphasized, you know, married couples' letters in the book, but it, they seems to me um, to be engaged in a particular kind of struggle in this regard that was worth um, worth thinking about. I actually had the unusual experience of giving a talk based on this research to an audience that had my mother-in-law in it once. Um, and my mother-in-law asked the very sensible question, you know, what have you learned about how husband and wives communicate? She's a psychologist, you know, what, what are the, what are the healthy and fruitful forms of communication and what, what doesn't work? And, you know, and I, I saw many cases in which, um, a couple would, um, really become resentful of their partner's failure to appreciate their version of civil war struggle. Um, and you could see that you could see the sourness, um, sort of, you know, infect, uh, a correspondence for a long time, but you could also see, uh, in cases, and I I wrote, you know, a, a sort of a longer section about one couple from upstate New York, the Blaisdells who, who really, their, their relationship seemed to be sort of taking a turn to the South, um, uh, you know, downhill. Um, but they came to a point where they finally started to understand how they were engaged in different versions of the same war. Mm-hmm. And once they, once they made that sort of conceptual leap to realizing, aha, yes, like 
here's my life on the home front, here's your life on the battlefront. And we see them um, as complementary rather than as, um, you know, experiences that isolate us from each other. Once that leap gets made, um, then you can see letter writing really sort of take flight as a medium in which um, they can uh, construct, develop that complementarity and allow that to flourish. Right. Uh, you know, looking at the letters of single soldiers or, or those that are not married, uh, yeah, sure, would it would have been different. Uh, but but you do look at correspondence between between soldiers and their mothers uh, as well. Uh, so that's a, that's a form of a relationship. I think the key here is is the re- relationship, whether that means marriage or a, a sister or a mother um, or a brother. That that in relationships of intimacy, however that intimacy is expressed, we're feeling the pressures of of what it means to to feel connected or not connected, and that is what you're constantly looking at, and what you're constantly allowing us to confront again and again and again. Um, that that uh, it's not really about seeing what happened to these people over time, uh, certainly not beyond the war because they stopped writing to each other. Um, but, but, but looking at the back and forth and the exchange, which is not necessarily a development of a relationship, but, but surely relationships are always developing and becoming stronger or weaker through communication or lack thereof, but simply the back and forth evincing the struggles of connection itself and what new realizations for each individual writer happen as much as in the relationships themselves, as you just alluded to that, that how does a, a soldier become a new man by learning how to express himself? And then you, you make this wonderful connection about, you know, w- women at home taking more, more, more power because they have to, in terms of, of keeping things running, uh, without the husband around and that, uh, there is a increased sense of self-possession through the ability for uh, these women to write their experience down, um, yes, for their husbands or or or, or uh, um, boyfriends who are away, but also for themselves. And there's this wonderful expression, you know, turning over a new leaf, and and you talk about how that's rooted in letter writing, literally turning over the page, right, and starting again. Yeah, which is something that I noticed a lot when I was working on letters by enslaved people that I saw a lot of letters that um, uh, led me to think, I think not implausibly, that if you were not an experienced letter writer, you, you could easily forget that, that, the, that a piece of paper had a back to it. Um, because I saw a lot of letters that would sort of draw up to a close um, at the bottom of the, of the front side um, and then be turned over and there'd be a, there'd be a PS. Uh, and the PS would sometimes have something much more surprising than anything that had been in the more carefully composed um, first page, that it was as if these writers had suddenly um, discovered, oh my gosh, I, I can keep going. There's another, um, there is a new leaf here. Women in 19th century America were um, uh, tarred with this stereotype um, that they always uh, saved the good stuff for the postscript. Um, and there were actually, you can see this in parodies. There were parodies published um, of letters by women. And one of the ways that um, that men made fun of women as letter writers to sort of try to suggest that they were more frivolous and you know less um, sophisticated than men is that 
um, is that all the, the really important parts of the letter would be relegated to the postscript, the back page, the new leaf. Hmm. Um, there was a, there was a, a satire that circulated for a long time in which um, a woman was writing to her fiance and she, uh, the news that her mother has died um, is conveyed in a postscript, um, which, you know, I think it's an entirely unfair thing hmm. because any person can stop and realize, well, part of why a PS is likely going to contain something really notable and surprising is that it had to be something that was worth um, you know, using the space on the back of the page, or in many cases, squeezing something into the, the, the bottom inch of the page. Um, you didn't write a PS unless you realized there was something important that you forgot. Um, and it was, you know, particularly during the war, um, it was women who had um, really consequential news to convey. Men often, they, they clearly felt um, a little embarrassed that they couldn't convey important news of the war because as enlisted right. men they didn't know they didn't know what was happening um they would always say you can find out more in the newspapers than than i can tell you about what's going on in the war um and they had no access to the the news of an extended family or a neighborhood um so women were the the chroniclers during the war period of the lives of everybody who wasn't a soldier the children the parents the siblings you know, who was ill and who was not and what was going on in, in, in a hometown. These were the things that um, they, they couldn't say to their husband who was in the army, oh, well, you'll read about it in the newspapers. Right. So everything was a PS for the, for the, on the women's side. I, it was just a constant rush of PS and PS and PS in, in that there are these incursions of, of importance, of information. And I, and yes, that, certainly that's part of the, uh, the, sort of the rules or has developed with, with letter writing, as you've suggested. Um, but also, you know, once people are, feel free to express themselves, um, thoughts start running that, um, they never thought they would have had before. And I'm, I'm wondering how much that allows us, it's almost an unedited, um, uh, version of thoughts versus when you know how to write more mellifluously, you're editing yourself all the time. And so, and so even though there's a struggle to express yourself, um, if, if, if you're letting thoughts just come out and put on the page as they are, um, there's a special access that we have, um, as, as readers. Uh, and I almost want to say that, that it allows for a poetics of expression, that's not a poetics that's sort of worked out, you know, and, and worked on over time, but a, a poetics, a natural sort of poetics of, of, of jarring juxtapositions that occur in our thoughts because it's just how we think. And so in some ways, you know, the struggle to read these letters um, in terms of, of putting in punctuation that's not there is actually a kind of poetic um, mode of reading. And I, did you feel that at all? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a poetics of of process rather than of product, right? Um, I think that's quite right. I mean, a lot of you, you know, I have felt influenced in some of my work by um, what people who work in the field of composition studies do, trying to figure out how do you teach you know how do you teach college students to write. Um, well, you you try to. Um, emphasize process over product and you try to teach them that the goal of writing is not to, so to speak, get it right. 
um, that's a recipe for all sorts of anxiety and stress for students. And they, you know, they end up not liking writing. Um, you, you want them to understand the act of writing as a process of exploration in which you're going to figure things out and unexpected things will occur. Um, and that's everybody, anyone who has any experience writing knows that's, that's quite normal. That's how it works. Um, but when we look at the past, we tend to want to, you know, if we're, if we're readers of literature, we're seeing a novel that we understand to have gone through a, a long process of revision, but this is, this is its, its final form. If we're looking at um, uh, primary sources as historians to try to figure out what happened, um, what was this person's opinion or position, um, it's helpful if that's sort of, um, you know, unambiguous. Um, but what I'm interested in is um, how is uh, how is that process something that we can actually use um, as a source to see um, a kind of intellectual history in the sense of discrete moments of thought unfolding. Right. So it's almost as if the literary scholar is traditionally more interested in the poetics of, of the final form, whereas the historian is interested in the poetics of process. And, and it's you traversing both um, that allows us to see what, what methodologies we can take from literary studies um, and what questions we can take from historical analysis. Uh, and so uh, as we come to a close here, I'm just sort of wondering, the, the book just came out, and but you have mentioned you've, you've talked about this subject uh, probably before the book came out as well. And uh, what what are people's response? I mean, do they do they want to know? Okay, so what are you t- telling me overall, or um, or are they willing to just sit with the kind of evidence, the feeling as such as we've been talking about? And is there a tension? Do you find in trying to explain the material that that you can't over-explain it, or don't want to over-explain it, or give it meaning, uh, or construct an argument overall? But just to show that this is this was the attempt at communication, and these are the feelings that erupted from it. Yeah, it you know it is um, it's a, it's a an unusual book in the sense that it, it, there's no elevator pitch version of its argument, uh, and I and I know that, and that makes it strange, uh, you know, as a book by an academic, um, but it's because I you know. I, I think it's important to be dealing with this this large corpus about which um, a a generalization that I could boil down and stand behind wouldn't wouldn't be valid. Uh, and so it is a book that um, sort of is more about arguing for a way of perceiving historical actors, a way of perceiving um, particularly. Um, classes of people who are not normally well represented in our historical records, um, a way of trying to really listen on their own terms to um, those surviving sources that we have um, in their voices, which, you know, which are not always many, Um, or, you know, in this case, they come into being only because there was a war. And then when the war ends, they stop. Um, So it's really a book that's, that's arguing more for, um, a practice than for an interpretation of what happened. Right. And that I would even suggest the argument is in 
the non-argument that that there's a recognition you want people to come to in in confronting this material um a recognition something about relationships or or how the process of writing unfolds but that it doesn't need to be articulated in the same way that there's there's an there's so much that is articulated or said through so little in these words and and i think that we should really take that on as a mode of communicating knowledge itself or our communicating our argument so to speak and then i think one of the greatest strengths of the book is that you attune us to the fact that um so little says so much and and i'm just thinking that that can have major repercussions if people historians and readers um can think about how that would apply to any number of of topics or subjects that are so so often sort of overanalyzed or overthought where words are just you know are just vomited up in terms of explanation and more explanation and more explanation when maybe that's just a way of covering up (laughs) the recognition this sort of emotional recognition for lack of a better phrase at the core well and i think it's there's a there's a uh, a fairly understandable impulse in any researcher when you are embarked on some inquiry you want to answer some historical question um, when you are going through the documents in a folder, um, y- you, you light up when you find something that's responsive to the question that you're asking, um, and you, and you write it down and you quote it. Um, but, uh, it, it's, I think to fully understand and really listen to what someone from the past has to say about this, um, requires trying to reconstruct what what was the act of writing in which this person was engaged? What are the conditions under which this person recorded this viewpoint? Um, what part of their story was the expression of this viewpoint? Because they probably didn't express it in order to answer my research question. Um, they had other reasons. Um, and trying to figure those out may lead me astray from coming up with uh, a cogent answer to my research question. But I think it leads me into a deeper and fuller understanding of who these sources are. Right. I think that in the end, we can actually feel the the pull and the need to know, as you say, that, you know, I am still living. I have not forgotten you. I remain yours. Yeah, I think that's nice. So with that, we'll have to conclude our hour. And um, again, our guest was Christopher Hager. And his new quite important book is I Remain Yours, Common Lives and Civil War Letters, just out from Harvard University Press. Christopher, uh, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Mike.